As reported in previous episodes of Tectonic, 17% of tech companies, TSIA tracks, and our public indexes has a chief revenue officer, and we believe that percentage will increase. It is estimated that about 15% of Fortune 5,000 companies have a chief product officer, and again, we believe that percentage will increase. Today, we will click into the role of CPO with Mo Tanabain a veteran of AWS and Microsoft, and currently serving as the Chief Product Officer of Cognite. Now, I'm Tom Slaw, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association. Welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. Before we dive in today, I'd like to share how TSIA can support technology companies in this current economic environment. I know that executive teams are navigating uncertainty. I also know that improving overall profitability has become a cornerstone of company initiatives. We hear it all the time on this podcast. So I am making a unique and time-limited offer. I will personally meet with any executive team to discuss the proven practices we see drive both profitability and growth. To learn more and take advantage of this time-limited offer, simply click on the email link in the show notes. Let's get this insight engine humming. Uh, Mo, welcome to Tectonic. It's great to have you. Um, can you. Can we start here by you describing what Cognite does and your responsibilities there as the chief product officer? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Thomas. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, Cognite is in the business of creating uh, value for industrial customers out of the large amount of the data that they have. It's typically hard to connect and make uh, full meaning of the uh, different various elements of data that exist in an industrial domain, whether being an oil platform or a factory floor. Uh, and Cognite basically is uh, magic sauce is uh, using some clever data engineering and AI and ML to connect these seemingly disparate sources of data, uh, delivering them as a unique consumable uh, Data enriched data platform that they can uh, that the business user and and uh, people who run operations can make wise business. So it is one of those Internet of Everything stories. Basically, we have telemetry we never had before, and now we can do new wonderful things with it. Is that the general direction? The, the way I would describe it is: uh, data has always existed in industrial settings. It has always been hard to consume it. And now we have uh, means through uh, products like Cognite Data Fusion or CDF uh, to be able to go through sometimes terabytes or, uh, or petabytes of data that exists in, in these large industrial uh, operations and figure out, for example, uh, what did we do uh, for this asset to live longer? Uh, what did we do for this uh, factory that it ended up... Uh, having more downtime and, and then uh, learn across multiple sites. Uh, for example, if I don't know, Nestle has 40 factories. Uh, what works across 40 factories? What are the common patterns? Sifting through that amount of data uh, wasn't possible before. And thanks to cloud and, and uh, as I mentioned, some of the newer technological advancements, uh, opportunities have come up to uh, to get through those uh, large volumes of data and make uh, better business decisions. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's super exciting times, and we've written about this in the past three books, but, I mean, you know, again, the general trend of, A, 
there is telemetry available, which was never available before. And like you said, now it's in the cloud. And now we have these, these next generation of tools, which really, in a sense, allow you to drive insights that you could never get to before. So it's, 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 I think it is really, you know, great times from that perspective. I had a, had a conversation with the John Deere executive a couple weeks ago on this podcast. And it's another great example of in these industrial type of companies that now, you know, have data they never had before. And it starts to show up in things like better productivity with farmers, et cetera. So it's, again, I think it's really super cool times. Um, but we're going to talk mostly here about what it means to be a chief product officer. And, you know, I have, I've seen brilliant software engineers struggle when they are given the task of being a manager <laughs> and making that transition from, hey, I'm a great technical person, but now I need to actually manage folks, much less, you know, playing the role of a chief product officer. And you started, I believe, right, as a principal software engineer. And so as a technical person starting out, what what challenges did you face as, as you started to move into a leadership role like this? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, so let me start by, by take us uh, uh, through a time travel a couple of decades ago. Uh, which is where you were uh, explaining that I was a senior engineer in senior engineering role. And I had the aspiration to build a successful venture-backed business. So I quit my job, started a business, a startup, and it was in mobile payment. So we're talking about early 2000s. And uh, after three years raising uh, capital and building a pretty uh, uh, good technology platform for, uh, for the purpose, it didn't. Uh, it didn't work, uh, and it didn't work out. And after a little while of reflection on why it didn't work, um, I realized that. And I was the co-founder and the CEO, so coming from pure engineering comfort zone uh, into a business setting, uh, I realized that while we built a really, really amazingly good technology platform for that time, we were unaware of two other key. Uh, and more important things than the technology. And the, one, the first one was product market fit. Is this something people are actually willing to pay mm -hmm. for? Is, is yep. this scratching an edge? And the second one was uh, user experience matters. I don't think UX was even a term back then, but uh, we failed to deliver on these two. And and that was that became the beginning of a journey, a, a multi-decade journey for me to learn about these two areas. Uh, figure out, and I was lucky uh, back then. I got to know about Clay Christensen and read his books, and got to got in touch with him, and and that kind of uh, started to evolve uh, how I was thinking about building a business from a technology initiative into a really customer discovery initiative, and how you grow a business from that perspective. So uh, a long journey, but. Uh, uh, going back to your question, uh, many of these things are typically outside of an engineer's comfort zone uh, that I mentioned, product market fit and, and uh, dealing even with design and design teams, building experience. But the biggest challenge that I, uh, I, I've come to see for people uh, who transition from engineering and technical background into a business background uh, domain is differentiating between invention and innovation. Engineers are fascinated by invention because there's novelty to it. There is uh, pulling off a hard thing and, and technology in it. Uh, but invention 
don't matter if people are not willing to pay for it, which then it becomes uh, an innovation. Mm-hmm. And that distinction and how you go after building something that is novel, uh, technology uh, basically allows uh, to disrupt uh, the, the status quo, to disrupt the incumbent and build a new way of doing things, but only when it's valuable, only when uh, someone is willing to pay for it and pay for it more than what it takes you to build it and deliver it. That distinction is really, really, uh, to me, the biggest challenge for an engineer to absorb completely and deeply. Then how do you do that? You become, again, these are some jargons, but there are actually means to operationalize them, uh, to become customer obsessed, uh, to become GTM, go-to-market, and sales-focused, to become financially astute. Uh, and these are not things that come naturally to, to an engineer. While it's not technology that creates, at the end of the day, a, business, a successful business, it's an enabler. Uh, and those things that I mentioned are the key drivers. But uh, as I mentioned, technology opens a window. Technological advances create windows of opportunity for a new entrant, like uh, like whoever wants to do uh, build a new business, uh, to go and unseat an incumbent. But you can only do that when you're aware of these other things. So that combination of these two, three things are, are the magic sauce. Well, you know, and as you, as I listen to you tell your, your story there, I mean, it really resonates with me in the sense that product managers, right, and ultimately then a chief product officer, I mean, this is a, a role that you have to be self-made in this. That You know, it's not like when you go to school and you say, hey, you know, I'm going to be an accountant or I'm going to be the engineer. And, I, and there's a lot of, you know, structured ways to learn the frameworks, the techniques, the approach, et cetera. But, you know, for product management, you, you know, it still is, I would submit, a relatively young discipline. And I was just talking to, I can't remember who I was talking to a couple months ago, but, you know, just how few colleges have anything uh, around this? I mean, did you have, you know, like you had to go out and reach out to, you know, to Clay Christensen and, and develop a relationship there and, and onboard, you know, new thoughts there. But is, have you ever been through any formal training on this topic or is this basically self-taught? It's practically self-discovered, more than self-taught. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the teaching is at least there is a source you know where to go to. Yeah. Um, a lot of times uh, there is no uh, source to go directly. Yeah. So you're right. It's a combination of, to be a really world-class great product manager, a combination of skills have to come together. Uh, the biggest one is how to build an intimate relationship with customers, your customers, to uncover those little nuances that even sometimes the customer doesn't understand well enough and turn that ambiguity into a lot of clarity for your engineering resources to go and build. Because they don't know any of this. So going, being comfortable with that ambiguity and uncertainty and creating clarity out of that is, is really a skill that, that there are tools to do it. Like we have jobs to be done. We have, we have different frameworks. But it takes um, some, some art, form of art, and mixing it with science to get there. Yeah. Then uh, you, you need to uh, go a little deeper than what, uh, what comes uh, like linearly to, to most people. Uh, most people see correlations. Oh, this is, uh, there are lots of people are, are using this type of product. So let's go build uh, uh, this type of product for, for that. But going to causation, what, what, is it, what is it that makes these people to pay for this product? That causation beyond correlation is really what differentiates a really, really good product manager 
uh, from an ordinary. Yeah, yeah. And then putting some uh, some KPIs uh, in place to to make sure that uh, you you know how you measure your progress and success as a product manager and as a product. Yeah. So you know, one of the things that I observe when we look at companies and you look at the function of product management is that often it is you know, very diffuse, right? Throughout throughout the company, right? There'll be product managers spread out across, you know, maybe different business units or a lot of different, um, you know, areas um, in, in they're living in different product teams. So is a CPO, right? So, so how do you drive best practices across, you know, folks that are, they're often scattered sort of to the, you know, through the four winds of a, of a company? How do you, how do you do that to get some, you know, some commonality there? Yeah. So that, that is true. Um, so uh, again, the, the the definition of the role of CPO also varies from company to company. Some uh, so, uh, some CPOs only drive the product, uh, and uh, spiritually across multiple product management functions that belong to business units, different business. So they have dotted lines kind of uh, influence. Some uh, they they have the product management team uh, centrally, but then engineering is is in a different uh, reporting chain. Mm -hmm. uh, in my case, uh, I'm fortunate that I have both product management and engineering and design within the same organization. So there is that uh, kind of line of influence that, that one can make uh, to drive a cohesive and fluid relationship across these three, because these three, at the end of the day, are the critical engines that builds a product. At the end of the day, product is as good as the line of code that you write or the design that you make for the user interface and, and designing the uh, interaction model. And then uh, it becomes PowerPoint and demos and, and the, the GTM team will take it over. But that's not uh, the, the end of it. Mm -hmm. It's still a, a CPO needs to uh, instill a culture of uh, what is important for the customer? What is important strategically? The, uh, a sales organization, uh, a GTM organization, is driven by by quotas, by numbers, by by deals, and and if if you let uh, those uh, to drive your product strategy, your product becomes a collection of uh, a lot of local optimums. Yep, right. Specific customer need. Exactly. So this is opportunistic for uh, customer A, so let's go build this. We're opportunistic for customer B, let's go build this. Then there is that, uh, we lose that cohesive uh, value that a, a real repeatable product can bring to uh, to the business. And, and that's really the job of the CPO, to create that culture of being strategic, especially when you are at a certain stage of maturity of a business. Uh, we're talking about SaaS businesses here. Uh, a SaaS business has a different levels of maturity, and and uh, you can, uh, as as a CPO, you need to instill that strategic uh, kind of acceptance that we should let go of some of these revenues. It's okay for our strategic benefit and uh, solving the repeatable customer uh, use cases. So, as I hear you again, in terms of culturally you know, driving this North Star with, you know, all the product managers, if there's multiple, you know, product managers in play uh, around, you know, we are really here to understand the strategic value to the marketplace, keeping us on track, keeping the product within that realm, not going down every rabbit trail that may, you know, sales may bring us in terms of, quote, this is a huge opportunity. Um, because if they're not doing that, you know, nobody is. Right. No, I mean, if they're not doing that, nobody is. And, you know, and also as I was listening to you, I'm just 
curious. Um, I didn't have this question on the hit parade, but in your mind, you know, if I'm talking to somebody and they say, "Hey, I'm a chief product officer," versus I'm a, I'm a chief technology officer, in your mind, what's the difference in the in the focal points of those two two roles? Sure. Uh, that's another great question. So, uh, chief product officer, as I mentioned, is basically uh, the mandate is the mandate of the product team is go figure out those uh, nuanced, hidden, uh, ambiguous customer requirements and translate them, uh, prioritize them first, and translate them into a set of actionable requirements in a PRP or something. Validate them through jobs to be done and and all of that methods that we have, and then give it to engineering and say, go build it. This is your product backlog. Go build it. That's if, if uh, a, cus- a CPO and a product organization does that, I think that's a, a good part of their, their mandate. A CTO, on the other hand, has a, a two or three other critical roles that may or may not fit into this broader thing. One is when you start uh, building the product organically, you end up uh, a bunch of uh, kind of uh, silos in, uh, in a way from technology stack perspective. Uh, teams are building different uh, different uh, uh, pieces of the product. Um, and Conway's law says that a, a software product typically resembles the organization chart that it builds. So you end up kind of like an org chart. And it's, uh, one of the most critical roles of a CTO is to look at this and says, okay, I, we have five key feature, uh, main features. And across these four, uh, four or five stacks that we have, these layers now common. They're used in most of these applications. That's said on top of the platform, for example. Let's take, let's refactor those architecturally and go uh, write a common layer in the platform so every application silo can use it. So, or, or this may be in uh, first-party applications or third-party applications. That to me is one of the critical roles a CTO has to make sure architecture is optimized. But the second one is. Uh, he or she is ahead and on top of technology trends. So if we we basically built uh, software before in in, in uh, and deployed deployed it in executables, uh, and we expected the environment to provide the runtime, now we have containers and Kubernetes and orchestration. Then hey, let's let's move our software stack to a containerized model, Docker, and corporate. Those are the things to meet the two key functions that a CTO is responsible for. So, so if I play that back, right, the, the, the Reader's Digest version, you know, CPO, again, main remit is product market fit, always thinking about that. Where CTO is, okay, you know, we have the product. I am thinking about, are we really using the best technology stack, the best implementation of technology to execute on that product? Yeah, two very different focal points. Good. Helpful. So, you know, these are really super interesting times, basically one week after the the failure of of Silicon Valley Bank. um, It's really, I think, sends, you know, some shockwaves through the startup, you know, communities here. People are understanding they're operating in different times than two or three years ago. And, you know, cash was easy and all that kind of, you know, interest rates were low and all that kind of fun stuff. So in this current environment, what do you think are some of the greatest challenges that are facing product managers, you know, specifically at SaaS companies today? So uh, I think some of the greatest challenges that I see, and I've I've been in in the SaaS business for a while, so I've dealt in creating and growing different SaaS businesses the last uh, decade or so of my life, is uh, the biggest one is making your SaaS product a mission-critical part of your customer's daily life. 
Like the user comes in, they say, okay, I cannot uh, do my job today without this product. And that uh, goes back to uh, one metric and one metric usage. How do you increase the usage of uh, your SaaS product? Because that's how you uh, make it part of the mission critical uh, uh, part of the, the user and the customer. Uh, and then uh, the second thing I, I, I would imagine, and that, that on its own, like we can dive deeper and, and uh, discuss it in more details uh, if we need to. The second one is how you grow your SaaS business while staying profitable. There is this inherent uh, competition between growth and profitability, as you very well know. Yeah. Uh, and the key here is really to accept uh, that uh, you need to stay horizontal. We talked about being strategic rather than opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to, uh, as, a, as a SaaS product uh, leader, to think about horizontality all the time. If, if the a deal, I don't know, a $10 million deal comes in and... The, the sales uh, GTM person is uh, is pushing for it and says, but we, wa- we will not get this deal unless we deliver this piece of product that is only good for its customers. Yep, yep, yep. It, it takes a lot, uh, a lot of uh, convincing and good conversations to convince those people that it's not better to take this vertical, vertically integrated deal and go for horizontality. So that's the second part. Uh, I would say uh, it's a hard conversation sometimes to to have, to tell your CRO or GTM organization or even your CFO that hey we're not going to take this deal uh, or we're not going to build this product because even though we're going to get lower ARR uh, it's better uh, long term and and strategically it will allow us to even grow faster uh, give, when when we look at the horizon a little farther out. Those are some of the the, the key challenges, I think, product managers and SaaS companies. But um, I go back to, again, usage is the key. And then uh, staying uh, or balancing profitability and uh, and staying horizontal. And depending on what stage of maturity a business SaaS business is, uh, uh, a lot of times, uh, again, uh, even though it's counterintuitive, it makes sense to say no to revenue. It makes sense to stay horizontal. And it's very very gut wrenching when when you want to do that yeah. because all of a sudden you're you're lowering your your annual uh, uh, total ARR by I don't know thirty percent when you say no to those things. Well, you know, again, these are very interesting times, and I would submit that in the first time in in over twenty years in our industry, it is no longer this growth at any cost mentality. It's been twenty years, right? Where it's like, hey, as long as you grow on that top line, which leads to things like you're you're, you're saying, which is, hey. This customer may, you know, be suboptimal, but it's ten million dollars in ARR. We're going to go for it, um, and and so this is a really significant pivot. And and so I think that for a lot of people listening, and I know this is the conversation in boardrooms and executive suites, is how do we get this SaaS business model more profitable moving forward? Right, we've got to operate differently. And you put one key tactic on the table, which is this discipline. Right, because not all ARR is created equal, is what you said there. <laughs> not every customer yeah. is going to be a profitable customer for you, and you've got to have discipline around that. What other levers do you think that the the, the product leaders can help companies pull in terms of improving profitability? So uh, obviously, profitability has two key components: revenue and then cost. So the other uh, revenue is one side of the coin, but but the coin, but cost is also quite important. We are transitioning now into a different world 
based on realities are kicking in, some conventional business principles that, hey, you need to uh, make more money than you spend to yeah. be a business. What a concept. <laughs> what a concept. I know, huh? I swear it's really concept. Yeah, crazy talk, especially in Silicon Valley. Uh, yeah, so uh, those are now sinking in. People are both investors and business leaders. and, and But for, for employees, a lot of employees, those are still stranger things. Yeah. Uh, the, hey, oh, why are you taking my, I don't know, $5 energy drink away? Uh, yes, we have to control costs. Cogs is important. Uh, or uh, let's, uh, let's be more uh, kind of assertive in, in making sure the product is easier to use so we don't have to go and put a lot of humans behind it, especially in, in enterprise. I mean, this is very common humans behind it to make it usable for the customer because humans are low margin SaaS software is high margin so let's let so those are the type of things uh, and kind of shift and pivots in thinking that uh, that now companies uh, and teams uh, need to make yeah. you know as I listen to you there and you know we do a lot of work on the service side of the the equation in technology business models and what you just said there I mean this handshake between product teams, product management, the capabilities of the product and the service motions in terms of cost, right, is is critical, right? Because if you have to throw all type of labor, you go back to adoption. Hey, I want our, you know, our customers to be using our product every day. If the way you're solving that is throwing tons of customer success labor at it, you know, to, to walk the customer through that and get them to be able to adopt, et cetera, um, because the product is is hard <laughs> to, to adopt, right? There's a huge opportunity that occurs right there. So product management, you know, really that that closed loop between what the service people see back to product management to say, here's our opportunities and prioritizing those asks, right? That come from services saying, gosh, if you could do this, this, and this, we could save labor, we could accelerate adoption, whatever. I think that that loop, you know, in companies where I see it work well, there's there's gold in them their hills, um, but where it's broke, you know, you, you you get very frustrated. Service organizations going, gosh, the product team would just listen to me. We've got huge opportunities here. So I, you know, be keeping that, you know, that communication really tight between those two organizations, I think, is a is a winning strategy for sure when it comes to Absolutely. profitability. Absolutely. Yeah. The um. So you know, you and I met through through LinkedIn, and um, we were talking, and you said that you really found some concepts from. Previous books we've we've published helpful um, when you were at both AWS and, and, and Microsoft, and, and I think you were talking specifically about the As a Service Playbook, which was um, one book before the one we just we put out here. And so, you know, obviously, I, I'm intellectually curious here as a product leader. What concepts did you find most helpful from from that book? Um, quite a few, actually. I, I read that book a while ago, at uh, your book. Uh, I, I think the, the Technology as a Service Playbook. Uh, the title is. It's a master uh, reference, in my view, uh, anyone who's uh, either uh, building or growing a SaaS business. So uh, some few concepts. One the, to begin with is it gives you, the book gives you a, a very uh, clear framing on how mature your business is. Mm-hmm. Like you, you talk about profit horizons and future value aggregators and midterm wedge and uh, uh Current profit maximizer, I think, and and when you figure out, and it, it the book actually tells you how to figure out where you are based on how fast your your revenue and expenses are are growing, and when you land on that, when you put your your a line on that uh, 
graph, on that diagram, this is my business, then you can uh, build a strategy to how to grow profitably. Uh, and I cannot overstate the clarity that layer model brings to the, uh, to the SaaS business. And at every stage, uh, what do you need to do uh, of the customer engagement? As a product person, I I'll clearly care a lot about adoption. That's that's basically the uh, across layer uh, the most important lever that I can I can control, mm-hmm. and and that has helped me. The book helped me a lot to understand how to create. Uh, going back to what I was saying, usage is one of the biggest challenges of a SaaS business. How to pro- how to productize the product in a way that uh, in- adoption grows. Uh, organically through a product-led uh, motion uh, and things like that. Then uh, let me see uh, the financial fish. This model of the fish, yes, <laughs> yeah, especially for for incumbent businesses who are transitioning from a licensed one-time transaction business model revenue model to a, uh, a consumption-based subscription-based uh, uh, business model. Uh, when you explain uh, that. Upfront, like I've done it before, I went to my CFO and I said, "Look, this is what we're going to expect over the next three years." So I actually drew him the financial fish. I told him it's called financial fish. So those those bring clarity. Those are tools that allow a product person to convince and create a culture in the organization to be more strategic. Yeah. The you know in an as you as you tell that perspective and again from the product side of it is is what I I love to hear um, because you know I've I've landed that content to um, a lot of service people to executive teams but it but to really hear the product perspective of why it was valuable is meaningful to me and you know two of the things you said so one on the layer model you know I was in a, I've told the story on stage before but I was in a meeting with a with a new TSI member. And somehow the, they they talked about layer, and I said, "Well, I'm glad you you know you, you've gotten value out of that." And they said, "Well, you know that's not TSIA's model." And I said, "Well, yeah, it is." And they said, "Oh no, no, that's an industry model. It's been around forever." And they were just completely convinced that we had that, that we didn't create that. So so that's how ubiquitous it's become, which is great. I mean, I think it's become very very popular, you know, especially with SaaS companies. But then the other thing you talk about this financial fish you know, nobody likes to fish. And you talk about this conversation with, you know, your executives around this. Every time, you know, I've ever presented the fish specifically at senior levels, the first reaction is always, there is no fish in our business, right? That's, I mean, especially the CFO, right? There is no fish in our model. And it's like, I'm here to tell you, there's a fish. (laughs) And now, and that's book has been out for several years, there's company after company after company in the public domain that, that we can point to and say, there's the fish. You, you can see it plain as day as they've you know worked to, to go, as you said, from that beautiful upfront business model where you're taking all that money in transactionally from the customer to a model where, you know, yes, you're going to like it when you have all these, you know, these annual recurring revenues down the road. But as you're building them, suddenly you're signing customers and you are deferring a bunch of revenue that you used to take up front. And, and guess what? That shows up. <laughs> that shows up, you know, in the financials. And there's there's no easy way, you know, around that that reality. But I, I do also hear people tell me the fact that we put it on the table, people have to look at the smelly financial fish, that it's helped because it just helps, pe- you know, people realize that, you know, that, that is a reality of this business model trans- transformation. So that's good. I'm glad that those were those were, were helpful. So I have one more question for you here today. And that is, um, so you you have worked at AWS. Um, you've worked on Azure. Uh, if you throw Google in there, you, you basically have three big 
players right, that, that are aggressively competing for enterprise cloud market share. Um, and now that you're not in that space directly, you know, I, I want to get your honest per- perspective, right? Um, for, you know, from you, um, you know, and, and I think, by the way, you know, Amazon because they've got this heritage in, in, in retail, um, they have always been, you know, happier or more comfortable with lower margins and profits than something like a Microsoft or a, a Google. So, so how does that space play out? Because you know, it is hyper competitive. It's 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 hyper. You know, it's hyper competitive. So, so is it a race to the bottom and low price? you know, provider is going to win or is there, is there some way that these folks are going to differentiate themselves and keep margin on the table? What do you think? So uh, obviously being able to operate at lower gross margins uh, is always a competitive advantage. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. But in the B2B space, there are other things that are equally sometimes even more important um, than pure GM perspective. Uh, the ability to understand a B2B platform business, uh, how network effects uh, create stickiness, the ecosystem of partners that you build around it to co-create value for the end customer. Mm-hmm. Bill Gates has a very famous saying that a platform owner makes more money than the platform ecosystem around it. That's not really a platform. A platform is when uh, the ecosystem around the platform makes a lot more money than the platform. And for Microsoft, the number has always been around ten dollars, one to ten. So if uh, Microsoft makes a dollar, then the platform should make ten dollars around. So understanding that and being able to operationalize and execute on that—that's a really, really key differentiator. And you can, uh, if you go ask AWS and uh, and Google, they've, they've realized that 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 ecosystem that Microsoft has uh, in enterprise and industrial domain and CIOs and, and those people—it's hard to to replicate, to copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to, to build. It's taken them many years. And, and still, uh, Microsoft has that grip on, on this uh, huge, valuable uh, part of the market. Then when you could look at uh, uh, Google uh, being the, the latest, basically, entrant into this foray of hyperscalers, uh, they actually uh, have to live with the smallest margin right now. Uh, compared to AWS and uh, Azure. But I, I imagine at some point, the mothership CFO is going to start asking some tough questions. And, yeah, yeah. And the folks who run uh, GCP, uh, they have to provide some good answers. Uh, and we're going to get there f- 10 years from now, five years from now, especially in this environment that we're in today, uh, like uh, in 2000, 2023, uh, that's not going to cut it in. Yeah. Well, you... You make a really important observation here about, you know, really the the ecosystem, the partner ecosystem. And, you know, Microsoft, as you know, is always a very, you know, channel intensive company in in the old world, right? Very channel intensive on how it went to market. That's really how it landed. Not, you know, not so much on the direct side. And what I'm hearing is, you know, that approach and that ecosystem, and of course, it's different partners, you know, but probably some of the same partners that carried over there is a huge asset when you're talking about being a platform provider and having those relationships. And, and so, and especially B2B, I mean, a big differentiator. And it, and it you know, it echoes a belief that we have because, you know, as, as different companies move into as-a-service business models and, and SaaS specifically, a lot of times this question becomes, well, you know, I'm just going to be direct. I mean, I used to maybe be more channel-intensive, partner-intensive, but gosh, if I'm SaaS and they're on my platform... It's a, just a direct model. I'm not quite sure, 
you know, about the role of the partner in the channel, et cetera. And our argument has always been the role is going to change. It's not the same as when they were reselling and installing stuff for you and supporting it on-prem, but you should be designing, you know, the partner ecosystem into your business model, you know, in this new as a service world, because we, we don't think the channel and the partners go away, regardless of the offer, there's a play there. And, and, and as you're describing, you get the play right. I mean, it's an amplifying effect <laughs> for you as the core technology provider. Yeah. So SaaS is a delivery model, really. At the end of the day, software businesses existed before. Uh, so if you if you're a Salesforce, uh, compared to Siebel, yes, you have a, we have a clear competitive advantage. But SaaS A versus SaaS B, the clear, sticky advantage is the ecosystem around it. And Salesforce is a great example, uh, for example. Uh, looking back again, AWS, AWS has this internal customer, uh, large-scale uh, retail customer internally that keeps them on their toes all the time. Yeah, yeah. So that helps them to build a superior uh, infrastructure as a service platform, yep. especially for cloud-only applications. Then when it comes to uh, applications that are kind of edge and cloud combined, and then you have physical assets in a factory floor or oil drill or things like that, then Microsoft has the advantage and can rely on its ecosystem to build a horizontal platform and specialize it uh, for different uh, verticals. Uh, and that's something that AWS has years to, to catch up. But to answer your uh, uh, final part of your question, it will be, it is, this is, again, predicting the future is bad business. But, <laughs> uh, but my guess is it will eventually be uh, a race to the bottom for at least one of them. And so there's going to be pre price pressure uh, along the way. And one of them is going to uh, finally do something different. And my guess is the future will have only two key hardware scalers. Mm -hmm. So you, there'll be a little bit of a weeing out. Yeah. And I, you know, the, the one perspective I, I, I have in terms of just watching tech in, in, in general, and, you know, this is not a popular opinion, but I think it's something that, you know, tech has to get its head around is, you know, we are coming off of a, of a world where when you look at a, at a well-optimized traditional software or a hardware business model, you know, like a Cisco's or HP's, those in the history of business models, those were the most profitable business models ever. From, from a gross margin and a bottom line EBITDA, not fake, non-GAAP, real GAAP results, the most profitable business models in the history of business models. Or Oracle you know, could throw off you know, close to 50 points of, of, of EBITDA. It's crazy, right? You know, th that world is, is changing. <laughs> and tech is going to have to learn, in a sense, how to take you know, a, a gross margin <laughs> haircut here and figure out how to truly operate you know, profitably in, in, you know, in a, in a different world than, than what we had, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And again, we've had this false positive for 20 years because money has been so cheap where we could grow, you know, these, these SaaS businesses, these tech businesses and not worry about it being profitable, right? Again, if you're a SaaS company on average, 37% on sales and marketing, unsustainable, I'm sorry, unsustainable. On average, you know, negative ten, you know, even unsustainable. So, so we have to wake up from that. <laughs> and but I, but I do think there's a path forward. I mean, we are going to have profitable, you know, SaaS business models. We're going to have profitable tech business models. They'll be profitable hyperscalers. But I think it's a different financial profile. And I still think that a lot of you know tech leaders, executives, boards, um, 
you know, I think the investors don't care because as long as there's somebody else who's going to buy it, you know, they're, they're fine. They don't really care if it's profitable, but for the people that are actually managing these businesses, um, I, th- I think that they've, you know, they've got to get their heads around that. And I think that, um, you know, we're going to see that in the next couple of years, big time. Yeah. And the two key, basically drivers of that profitability, again, looking at it from a product percent is making sure uh, you focus on horizontal use cases. So you can just copy paste across. You don't have to go and, and cost of revenue uh, is critical. Yeah, it's a COR. I don't, uh, the, like, a, a product leader has to be COR aware. Uh, and the second is uh, less humans is always better. Uh, it, it's a software business at the end. Software has the magic of incremental cost of zero. So, uh, well, process is a little not zero, but it's very minimal. Uh, the more you shift uh, your users towards self-sufficiency and self-service mode and less reliant on, on services and delivery and customer success, the more profitable you are. Yeah. Yeah. And and, I'll, and that last statement there, ideally, right? Software is 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 eating through labor, but, uh, you know, and our mentality is for, for the, the labor at the company, whether it's your sales executive, whether it's your service people, is you want them to be, in a sense, moving up the value stack. So the people that are in place are doing way more strategic things for you with those customers and those accounts, right? Yeah, so the human, the, the need for humans are not going to go away. Exactly. As we've seen the last few hundred years of technology innovation, we always just uh, uh, do better, more strategic, more creative things. Yep, absolutely. But um, so, yeah, this, I mean, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for, for coming on Tectonic here. I always like to close these with the question of the day. And so my question of the day for folks is that all eyes are on profitability. Is your product strategy and product leadership up to the task at hand? Cheers, everybody. 